Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets, ideas can change the world. Years ago, um, I had the chief security officer of Verizon speak at the great conversation as a physical event in, uh, in Seattle, Washington. And it would be a marker for me of all the great conversations for a variety of reasons. One, he shared transparently his weaknesses as a leader. And of course, how he overcame them over time. That just wasn't done. Leaders aren't that transparent in the risk, resilience and security industry. We don't like to talk about our weaknesses or our doubts. And he was, he, he was pivotal in that, and of course, because of that, he had the audience of leaders in the room in the palm of his hand. The other thing that struck me, remember he's a keynote speaker, is he was in the front row the rest of the event, taking notes. Obviously a voracious learner and respectful of the moment, which is every moment, which is the mindfulness moment of life that we're here to grab nuggets even when we don't think they're there. Grab nuggets of meaning. And it was just incredible. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn the other day and I realized Mike Mason, Michael Mason has done two things since he retired from Verizon. He's driven a bus and now he's written a book which I'm excited to read it will be arriving tomorrow, unfortunately, but Michael gets to talk about his book today for, to create an anticipation and an enthusiasm for his learnings so I can pick it up immediately when it arrives at my doorstep. <laughs> Mike, welcome to The Great Conversation. Well, thank you, Ron. I've, I've really been looking forward to this and not just to talk about my book, but because I, I really do feel like I have... Uh, something to share. I, I, this book is a derivative of many, many, many conversations I've had with mentees, a lot of mentees where I've had to change the direction of their thought process. And, and those same mentees said to me, you know, one day you've, you've got to write a book. And I thought, ah, when am I going to have the time to write a book? And who's going to want to read it? And then I started thinking, oh, you know, I will write a book. And one of the things I promised myself was that I wouldn't squeeze a 150-page book into 400 pages, as I've seen done many, many times. It's a relatively short book. If you're flying from Seattle to Virginia, where I live, uh, you'd be able to read it in that time. Uh, but I do think it, it's about life's lessons. Everything in the book is true. I've changed some of the names because I wouldn't want to embarrass anyone, but everything in the book is a real story. And you know, you talked about me exposing weaknesses. Uh, I do that in this book as well. I talk about unconscious bias and I talk about myself as the person guilty of, of a bias. And, and I'm so glad the person who's in the story, I'm so glad she called me on it because it was a, we had a transformational, very brief conversation, but it impacted 
the leader I was to evolve in. This story happened when I was 27 years old, but it has stayed with me ever since. And Carol, uh, the woman who that, that part of the story is about, she knows I've used her name in the book. She's really proud of that. And, uh, and I've told the, the story about the multiple meanings that come from that story, not just about a bad guy with unconscious bias, but the other stories that come from that. Well, I just, um, I've only read, of course, the preface you on, on Amazon, and I'll make sure the link is uh, available to you all, but you, you can open up the book, you can get an excerpt from the book. And what I was struck by, and I was smiling when I was struck by it, what I was struck by is you go, this, this, is, this target audience is really about people entering the workplace through a, a middle level manager. But as I read further, I go, <laughs> you know, whether Michael intended it for that audience or not, I don't care if I'm 16 years old or 75, these lessons he's about to teach us are still relevant. Uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think you're right. Actually, uh, I wish I had maybe changed that. I always get a little I, I always get a little doubtful of myself when I'm talking to my peer group because I never want to appear that I am somehow elevated from them. But there's a reason I sit in the front of every conference I go to. I have been in a leadership position since I was a 22 year old uh, second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps, and even before that. Yet when I go to a leadership conference, I do not go with the assumption that I've heard every good tip. The reason I sit in the front room, a front room, in the front row is because I want to take notes. I want to ask myself, when I would come back from the great conversation, for example, my staff would say, oh no, here he comes with that, that clipboard, because I'm going to ask them, do we do this? Do we do this? Do we do this? So the bottom line is, it's about evolution. And I am always about evolving. Uh, I want, the day I die, I want my bucket list to be full. I don't ever want to get to the last thing and say, well, I'm ready for him to come take me. So I realized that, that the lessons embedded in this book, one of the things we, I always tell audiences, please don't start with the premise that present company is excluded. When I'm talking about bad things, because we have a lot of great leaders out there, but that doesn't mean they're flawless. That doesn't mean if you're a leader and don't believe you can improve the product that you are, that being a leader, it's probably time for you to retire. Because I believe I, the whole time I was in leadership positions, every day when I would come to work, my first thought was, what am I gonna do today to reassure folks that I deserve to be in this position. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the statements that's made is something that happened to you at six years of age. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I make sure I get it right, but uh, basically I think you, you, what does it say? It says, your father told you, boy, this world owes you nothing. Tell me the context of that. What was he trying to do at that time? I was complaining about something and uh, not, not being able to get something. And my father, that's when he said, boy, and I should tell the audience, when my father said, boy, he said it lovingly. When he said, Michael, I knew I was in trouble. But when he said, boy, we were having a close, warm conversation. But when he said, boy, this world owes you nothing, Ron, I can't tell you what a transformative statement that was. Not so much 
immediately. But as I went through my teen years and beyond, and I have a great story that reflects how I how that statement actually manifests itself in just one way in my life, but it's manifested itself a hundred times, a thousand times across the expanse of my life. But it has shaped, I call my book an anti-wine, anti-victim book. And one of the reasons I describe it that way is because I think we're becoming this gigantic victim nation. And if you start with the premise that the world owes you nothing, kind of hard to disappoint me because I already started with you don't owe me anything. If you don't mind, I'll tell the quick story. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a high school freshman. Now I'm 6'4", 205 pounds today. When I was a high school freshman, I was 5'7", about 105 pounds, absolutely soaking wet. I come out of the cafeteria, it's a gray, cold, wet October day in Chicago. I come out of the cafeteria, I should, I should back up for a minute. When I went to Mendo, Mendo Catholic Prep High School, uh, where I paid, my father paid half the tuition, I paid for everything else. The other half of the tuition, bus fare, books, everything else. Anyway, when I went to the orientation, they made it a big deal to be part of the Mendo man community. We were supposed to grow up and do good things in society. Okay, with that as a backdrop, I come out of the cafeteria by myself. I see this beautiful black horse that's on campus. I don't know today why the horse was ever on campus. Three football players are standing there admiring it. They're all wearing Leatherman, Letterman's jackets. They're all seniors. They're all white, which is important to the story. So as I walk up to the horse, the, the one guy in the group, sort of the leader of the group, he says, hey, you want to be careful walking around the back of this horse. Now, in that instant, his stock went right through the roof. Here I am, this lowly freshman, and this senior, this, this, this uh, man about campus cares about this young freshman. And then a nanosecond later, he finished by saying, because this horse hates niggers, and if he sees a nigger, he's going to kick his head right off his shoulders. Well, Ron, I'm 13 years, 14 years old. I looked at him, sort of smirk. Fighting wasn't an option. Again, these were all over six feet tall, all 200 pounds, all strong football players. I'm 107. I mean, I'm a, a you know, I'm 5'7", 105 pounds soaking wet. I don't, I'm not saying that fighting would have been an option had I been bigger than them. But I looked at him and I just thought, guy's an asshole. And I walked away. It didn't crush my spirit. It didn't destroy my day. It didn't, it didn't even hurt my feelings. You have to know me to hurt my feelings. And even if you know me, you only have a small chance of hurting my feelings. My father's statement that the world owes you nothing. That's where I started with that guy. So he didn't owe me a thing. Now, one could argue as an upperclassman, he owed it to me to show what it means to be part of the Mendo Man community. And he failed miserably at that. One of the things I wrote in the book is I hope if he reflects back on that conversation, not sure he ever has, I, I, I hope that he will wish that he had done something better. But since he was three years older than me, I was 63 when I wrote the book, I said, I also realized he may be a 66-year-old asshole. But again, we get too wounded by people who have no impact on our life. And that guy meant really, other than a human being, he meant nothing to me. So I wasn't going to let him take my joy, my motivation, my spirit, and I wasn't going to walk around campus with my tail tucked between my legs. I think there's a, a, a core premise here. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I just love, as always, I just love the way you convey these stories. And they're so meaningful to me. Um, 
One of the stories I've carried with me my whole life is this story of being created to create. And so the first principle in that is I'm not waiting for someone else to create it for me. I have been placed in a garden, which is my a, a domain that I've been intentionally put in, and I need to leave it hopefully better than I found it. Mm-hmm. And, and that uh, I have to learn how to work within that ecosystem, which will involve other human beings. But yeah. I am placed there to create. And, and my, you've done that over and over again with the small things and the large things. And the fact that your father engendered that response, you are here in the world, and I'm just rephrasing it if you don't mind, not because they just don't owe you anything, but no one owes anybody anything. And now we have to go to matters of the heart and the mind. What What is our purpose here? And, and I, you know, I can't help but think somehow along the way you decided it was service. Tell me where that came from. I think that probably came from, I'm going to say my grandfather, some of my neighbors, Ron, I have been fortunate. If I am wealthy in one thing, uh, I am wealthy in mentors, teachers, and the coaches I had. I really am. I grew up, as I say in the book, I grew up with neighbors who didn't suffer fools easily. These were people who had who had grown up themselves in the projects, but became first-time Black single-family homeowners. And that was a big deal. And they did not want to hear about my excuses, about why I couldn't do this or couldn't do that. They did so much for me that what I'm doing in driving the school bus and the mentoring I, I've done across my whole life, I'm just paying it forward. I hope that there are mentors of mine up in heaven who are looking down saying, you go boy, you know, because that's what I'm doing. I feel like I feel like I am paying a debt that, that all of us in one form or another, I think, oh, and so that's what I think I'm doing. I think it's part of my job was to elevate people. Part of my job was to help people to self-actualize. So I had employees come to me who were leaving Verizon asking me to do a recommendation for them. And Ron, I would give them a glowing recommendation. Some of them would come back with the actual letter and say, I can't believe you wrote this. I'm, I'm going to, I'm leaving. I'm going to another company. I said, I wasn't asking for your life. I was asking while you're here to give me the best you you can possibly give me. Beautiful. You've done that. Yeah. This is this is my payback to you. Right. And you're also speaking to all of those who are left behind them to let them know, I want you to work hard for me, but I'm going to work hard for you too. I'm going to look out for you. So I really think that servant leadership is what leadership is. All. It's not about the privileges and the perks and the rank. It's about what do you owe the people you are leading? That's why I'm strongly, I strongly believe when you're in a leadership role and you've lost your passion, you, you owe it to yourself to start with, but you owe it to all your people to move on, to mm-hmm. move on. Yeah, and uh, yeah, again, back to the term uh, owing, um, there are many leaders who are successful who wouldn't necessarily have that value. 
let's face it, they're throughout history, national figures, as well as ones we meet in the commercial marketplace. But back to your heart, your passion, something that was engendered in you that you do believe a leader is defined by his level of service or her level of service uh, to the ones who follow. And, uh, and, and that's just remarkable. And I, I almost want to bottle it and say, I, can we teach that? But I'm not so sure you can teach it. And it struck me as you were talking about mentors and mentees, even that football player next to the horse that day, in a way taught you something, even if it was from a negative, right? Absolutely. In a way, in a way that gentleman was a mentor from the negative side of the ledger. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, what he taught me is how I never wanted to treat freshmen when I'm in his position. Exactly. He taught, I mean, I've, I've had bosses, for example, who got up and, and I'm doing a presentation and it's about um, it's about nurturing the spirit of esprit de corps, because oh, that's something you don't hear talked about a lot in yeah. leadership meetings. Yeah. And um, one of the things I talk about is it's it's the aggregate of little things that we do, Ron. So for example, I was at, an, at a, you, know, you talk about learning from the bad. I was at an award ceremony. The boss gets up and there's a guy from the Middle East who's the recipient of the award. His family's there, his family's so proud. They're first of all proud he's in the agency and then, and then proud that he's being recognized. The boss absolutely butchers his name and kind of chuckles through it. And um, I saw the look on the family's faces. And I said, I will never, ever do that. First of all, that may be the only time they see their relative get recognized. It was their son get recognized. So what did I do from the time I was a supervisor in the FBI right up to executive assistant director? If I was given out an award and I didn't understand how to pronounce your name, I would go to the person and say, is this how you pronounce the name? Here's what the response was most of the time. It was like, that's close enough, sir. And I'd say close enough is not good enough. How would your father introduce himself to me? That's how I'm going to say your name. And Ron, I, I, I can get, I can feel my eyes almost welling up because I did this at one ceremony and this guy had a really complicated name. A name's only complicated until you say it 15 times, <laughs> then it's nothing, by the way. Um, but I get up there and I say his name as if I'd been a member of his family. His mother and father came up to me. Forget about the magnificent award their son had just got, gotten, just received. He said to me, the father and the mother said, thank you for pronouncing our name correctly. That little simple thing. So when I talk about, talk about nurturing the spirit of esprit de corps, which I think is so important in any organization, I go through a number of, first of all, how I define esprit de corps, and then secondly, the manifestations of it. But most importantly, how do you engender that? Because that's what you want. You want that all for one and one for all in whatever group you're leading. Let's spend a moment dissecting this title you chose for your book, mm -hmm. Working in America, Spectator or Gladiator. So I'm, I'm intentionally pausing. Working in America, interesting. Spectator or Gladiator. And finally, you decide. The decision is yours. Tell me about that title. Well, again, I want to move away. I think we need to 
we need to nurture a more warrior spirit in, in our young people and in our workforce in general. We need to quit waiting for somebody, the bluebird of happiness to come and drop one over your head and make your world right. Uh, we need to quit believing you can't speak to power. And I've got some, I got what I believe are some very powerful stories, including when I was the reason a Marine Corps major's career was ended. He went to rehab, he was an alcoholic. But when I reported the incident, this in particular incident to the uh, battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel, I didn't know if they had grown up together as officers. I didn't know if they were best friends. I was four months in the battalion. Uh, well, no, I was about a year and a half in the battalion when I had to make this report. And I didn't know what their history was. I didn't know if their families got together during Christmas. But when the sergeant, when three NCOs told me of the incident, I didn't feel like I had a choice. I felt like I was obligated because I was an officer of Marines. I had a job to do. So I wasn't going to be a spectator. I wasn't going to sit on the sideline. You know, I was going to go and do what I had to do. And so the whole idea about being a gladiator, I think of a gladiator and I realize the history, you know, gladiators were slaves first, gladiators second, but, but it was, it was sort of like every slave is not a gladiator, even if every gladiator had been a slave. But the bottom line is I'm looking at a gladiator as a fighter, somebody who had to get up every day, uh, knowing that somebody might be better than him and, and knowing what the consequence of that would be. Well, that spirit, that spirit of, you know, why, when that gladiator went into the arena, he certainly thought he was going to win. Why did he think he was going to win? Because he prepared. He prepared. And that's what a gladiator does. You, you expect to do well in that presentation because you're prepared to do well. You expect to do well on that assignment because you have prepared for it. So I feel, you know, I'm always telling people how lucky I feel about my career. And I've had my close friends say, your career has got very little to do with luck. It has to do with hard work and preparation. And in fact, at the risk of, I don't want to sound arrogant or anything else like that, that is what it's a result of. I mean, you don't get to be a 300, uh, a 350 hitter in the major leagues without practicing and preparing. So why would you take that away and say, no, 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 no. I just, I just decided one day I wanted to play baseball and boop, here I am. That's not true. And it's not true of us, Ron. It's not true of you. It's not true of me. It's not true of other leaders in the security industry. They have prepared to be in those positions. And that's what I'm trying to tell uh, young folks is that because young people get they get frustrated, they know where they are and they know where they wanna be. And the gulf between those two frustrates them. And I always tell them, stop. Would you have a ladder, a 26 foot ladder with one rung on the bottom and one rung on the top? Well, good luck navigating that ladder. No, what's the next thing you have to do? And the next thing you have to do, I didn't join the FBI and get made an EAD. So the whole gladiator thing is to develop in every aspect of your professional life, more of a combative spirit and not fighting just to fight, but fighting the fights that have to be fought. Wow. Here's what I took away from it. When you first said gladiator, like you said, there's a history to that. But truth be told, and much of the wisdom literature out there reflects this, truth be told, each of us individually have to choose what to be enslaved by. If you think about it, a job, a job has a master, if you will, right? So, so given that, what is that spirit in the gladiator, even though they might have been enslaved, 
What is the spirit, the courage, the preparation, the discipline? What is the nature, the core of that warrior? And uh, I think this is, this is a pretty outrageous comment, Michael. I'd love you to speak to it. But isn't every day we wake up a life or death decision? If you think about it, we have to choose life. I think we have to choose the degree to which we'll engage in life. Right. Uh, because I don't wake up and decide I want to die and just be gone. But I do think we have to wake up and decide what is the spirit we're going to bring to, right. to us. And interesting, Ron, I talk about that in the book. I talk about we have a decision to make as to how we're going to engage. Um, and there are times when you have to pick your poison. You know, I had a mentee who his team, there, there were five teams involved in this major project at Verizon. His director gets up and is talking about his team's contribution to it, but she's got all the timeline wrong. And ultimately he can't maintain, he can't make that timeline, but he says nothing. So he's saying to me, he says, Mike, I knew what was going to happen. I knew when my team failed to make the timeline, which we did, I knew I was going to get called on the carpet, which I did. He said, and it wasn't my team's fault. And Ron, I said, because here's one thing I believe in mentoring, you have to have an honest relationship. If your mentor is only telling you good things all the time, I question a relationship. He said, it wasn't my team's fault. And I said, you're absolutely right. It was your fault. And his eyes got big as saucers. He said, well, you know, I didn't want to embarrass my boss by correcting her in that meeting. I said, no, stop. You let every one of those senior executives leave believing you could finish that project as your director had promised. I said, brother, there are times when you've got to choose your poison. You chose incorrectly. You chose a poison made it look like you and your team had failed. So that's what I'm talking about, a gladiator. Somebody who in the moment has to step up and do the right thing because you won't always get you know, you don't get a six week notice when you have to do the right thing. So let's say somebody, I had a, 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 an agent one time talking about a case of his. I had just come back into the office. I won't even say what office I was in. I won't try to give him up. But um, he was talking about this case with a couple of cops, a couple of state troopers. Then I said, oh, sounds like a pretty good case. I said, who's your subject? He said, a couple of ragheads on the, on the east side of town. And I said, whoa. I said, you need to find a way to describe people of Middle Eastern descent in less pejorative terms than a raghead. And I turned, walked in my office and closed the door with a bit of authority. Um, why was that important in the moment? Because he came in later and said, why did you embarrass me in front of our colleagues? I said, because you embarrassed us in front of our colleagues. You embarrassed the FBI. We could be doing a civil rights case and they heard you describe Middle Eastern people as ragheads. I said, that's completely unacceptable, completely unacceptable. And he understood that, but it's dealing with it right in the moment. I said, besides that, if I'd called you into this office, they don't know that I'm not high-fiving you on a good joke. You know, so, so a gladiator doesn't get the opportunity, gladiators didn't get the opportunity to say, hey, can, can you hold it? I got a pulled hammy. Uh, can, can we do this fight next week? No, a gladiator had to fight through it. He had to be prepared in the moment. And I and I don't and I don't look at gladiator as a as a I think of it as a gender neutral uh word. So I I I've written signed books already to women and said you've always been a gladiator. But in 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 the day they were men. 
A gladiator didn't get to pause. A gladiator had to know how to respond. Now, we don't have a mace coming at us and we don't have a sword coming at us, but metaphorically we do. And we don't always have time to step back, analyze, step back, analyze. No, sometimes you have to act in the moment. And what I want in the in the out of what I want people to get out of the book is that you determine what you're going to be every day. You determine if you're going to be a spectator or you're going to be a gladiator. And that's not to say the spectators are always bad. It's not. But you get to decide which you're going to be. And in my own life, I prefer to be a gladiator. And I can I have other examples in the book that illustrate that because I didn't want to talk from a perspective of having been a senior vice president a position where you're relatively safe from people messing with you, if you will. So the book really goes to early in my career, mistakes I made, things like that. Well, for each of you listening to this conversation today, if, uh, if you're feeling what I'm feeling, that Mike Mason is never lacking in the stories that have been seminal in his development. But one thing does, does uh, we all realize from this conversation and that working on your character, developing a warrior spirit and, um, and struggling through the, inver- uh, the various weaknesses that will be exposed hopefully with great mentors is, um, is really the subject of this book. And uh, I would urge anyone to pick it up and uh, by extension, have a great conversation with Michael Mason. Mike, thank you for a great conversation. Well, Ron, thank you for having me on. Thank you for giving me a platform to talk about the book. I really do appreciate it. Uh, Well, hopefully one day we have a physical event. We all get back together and we do it again. Well, I look forward to that. Thank you.